who is Jesus? It's a question of utmost significance, utmost importance. It's the central question of this season. And the temptation that we all face is to blitz through this season uh, in all the hustle and bustle and the activity and to not ask and answer the question. And when we do that, we've missed the point. Who is Jesus? It's a question of utmost significance. And in his very helpful book, Near Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis challenges us and clarifies for us the identity of Jesus. Let me read a little excerpt from his book, Mere Christianity. The C.S. Lewis writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either the man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Who is Jesus? What C.S. Lewis helpfully clarifies for us is that there's really three options that we have. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. Those are our options. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. And this morning, as we conclude our Advent series, we lock in on the character of Jesus. We stand in awe and wonder of his Lordship. So that's where we're headed this morning. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John chapter 1, it's on page 886 on the Bibles that we provided on your chairs. John 1, page 886. If you're here this morning and you don't have a hard copy of the Bible, we would love to give you one. We love giving Bibles away. There are plenty of hardback black Bibles in the lobby. You're welcome to take one of those. If you have one that you need for a friend, please get one for that person as well. John chapter 1, and I'll read verses 14 through 18. The Apostle John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So in our Advent series, uh, this Christmas season, we've been unpacking the introduction to the Gospel of John. Uh, that introduction is sometimes called John's 
prologue, or his, his first word. And we've mentioned that this prologue is a pregnant prologue. And what I mean by that is it's piled up with themes that he then unpacks later for us in the rest of his gospel. So it's, it's a fitting introduction, like the introduction to a term paper or an essay. You tell people what you're going to tell them in the introduction, right? So you introduce some themes, and then paragraph after paragraph in your essay or your term paper, you're unpacking the themes that you introduce in the introduction. In the same way, John introduces all kinds of rich themes in this prologue, in this first word, which is 1 through 18. Themes like the divinity of Christ, grace and truth, bearing witness to Jesus, the new birth, life and light, all these things that he introduces, and then he'll later unpack in further detail. And so over the past two Sundays, we've tackled a few of these themes. Our first Sunday in this series, on the 11th of December, we unpacked the divinity of Christ. And then last Sunday, the 18th, we unpacked two, two themes, bearing witness to Christ, and then the responses to Christ. This Sunday, Christmas Day, we unpack another theme, and that is the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation of Christ. In this prologue, we, we encounter the deep things of God, the theological truths that are glorious and rich, and in our human, limited human understanding, impossible to, to plumb the depths of. The deep things of God that really leave us in a state of awe and wonder when we seek to, to wrestle with them. Awe and wonder are the appropriate feelings at Christmas, right? Those are the, the feelings that Mary and Joseph experienced upon the arrival of their son. The miracle that came that first Christmas day. Awe and wonder are what the shepherds experienced when they saw the angelic host praising God in the highest upon this announcement that a king has been born in the city of David, that Christ child has been born. Awe and wonder for what the wise men experienced as they finally reached their destination with gifts in hand to present to the Son of God. Awe and wonder for what we're meant to experience when we encounter the deep things of God. The incarnation of Christ, God, became a man. He became enfleshed and lived and dwelt among us and lived the life that we failed to live and died the death that we deserve to die and rose again victorious from the grave, offering salvation to anybody who would believe. You cannot work for this gift. You can only receive it by faith. All and wonder. The appropriate feelings at Christmas. I'm going to walk you through three points uh, in these few verses, John 14, John 1, 14 through 18. We're going to examine the, the character of Christ, the presence of Christ, and then the grace of Christ. That's a brief outline of our time together this morning in this passage, the, the character of Christ, the presence of Christ, and then the grace of Christ. So first, the, the character of Christ. As we do our best to unpack the incarnation of Jesus here in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, we behold this glorious and mind-stretching truth about the character of Jesus Christ. In verse 14, John says, And the Word became flesh 
and dwell among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse 14, we encounter the greatest miracle. That God became a man. The Word became flesh. Jesus Christ, the divine message, takes on human flesh. Jesus became human, but he did not cease to be what he was before, the pre-existent Son of God. As he took on human flesh, he remained divine as well. He retained his divine nature. See, Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Not 50% God and 50% man. He is 100% God and 100% man. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. In Christ we see two natures unified in one person. Two natures, God and man, unified in perfect harmony in one person. He is the God-man. Now thinking about the identity of Jesus, his divinity and his humanity will push the limits of our comprehension. And that's okay. You should feel stretched as you try to study John chapter 1. And that is appropriate. These are just beauty, beautiful, glorious, divine thoughts. You should feel stretched, pushed to the limits as you study this wonderful truth. In the 5th century, a collection of early church leaders hammered out this wonderful statement that we call a creed to help people distill from the Bible what we believe about Jesus. This statement has guarded the church for centuries from theological heresy, from those who would seek to deny his humanity and from those who would seek to deny his divinity, both of which has happened in church history. And so this is called the Chalcedonian Creed, and I want to read a portion of it. It's written in 451 AD in, in what is now modern-day Turkey, what was then Asia Minor. Now bear with me here and just listen to how these authors carefully crafted and wordsmithed this statement. And how, how rich it is. Listen to how they protect the mystery of Christ's full divinity and his full humanity. The Chalcedonian Creed says, We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of his two natures being by no means nullified by their union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful statement. Jesus Christ has two distinct natures. He is fully God. He is fully man, united in one person. The distinctiveness of his natures is not nullified by their union in one person. In other words, his humanity is not overshadowed by his divinity, nor is his divinity tainted by his humanity. 
They are perfectly preserved together, 100% man, 100% God, harmoniously united in one. Why belabor this point? Why the, the intention and the deliberate nature of this statement that we read and appreciate today? Why was it necessary for Jesus to be both fully God and fully man? Friends, our salvation is at stake on this theological truth. One of those early church fathers, a man named Athanasius, Athanasius wrote this. If Jesus Christ is not fully God and fully man, we are not fully saved. That's what's at stake. The only way we could be saved is if the God-man came and died for us. Likewise, centuries later, an English minister named Anselm of Canterbury wrote, Only God could satisfy God's justice, and only a man could represent us. You see, only God could satisfy the requirements of perfect righteousness, and only a man could accurately represent us, those who need to be saved. And through his divinity, he is able to extend to us his perfect righteousness. And through his humanity, he is able to bear our sin and just punishment. He represents us before his Father. Our sin can be atoned for. We are given his perfection. If you trust in Christ, you are literally clothed in his perfect righteousness. You and I were soiled by sin, our garments filthy, but when we trust in Christ, he gives us his perfect righteousness. He then takes all of our soiled nature, he takes all of our sin, and he shoulders it. And so you can think of your salvation as this massive exchange. You get all that was good that Christ had, all of his righteousness, and he gets all that was bad from you. It's a massive exchange, a glorious exchange. That's what happens. He takes our sin and we receive his righteousness. The gift that we receive by faith. The great chasm of alienation between God, a holy God, and unholy people is bridged by Jesus, the God. It was essential that he be fully God and fully man. Otherwise, we are not fully saved. The requirement to purchase perfect righteousness is met. And our human represent, representation is also met. That is the beauty and wonder that we celebrate at Christmas. Only the Christ child could carry out this saving work, this reconciling work between God and man. The character of Christ, 100% God, 100% man, united in one person. The character of Christ. Secondly, the presence of Christ. In verse 14, John says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. So through the incarnation, Jesus Christ comes and dwells among us. He sets up shop in our existence. John writes, the Word dwelt among us, and the phrase there, the verb, means to come and pitch a tent. It's the same word in the Old Testament for the tabernacle, setting up that massive tent that the Levites set up and took down, set up and took down as God's people moved and navigated and through the desert, right? It's pitching a tent or tabernacle. And Jesus came and he 
pitched his tent among us. He lived among us. We became roommates with him. That's what this rich word means here. He dwelt, he tabernacled among us. In the Old Testament, God mediated his presence through the tabernacle, through that moving tent that later became the temple in Israel's history. And with the, the tabernacle, access to God's presence was carefully restricted. Only one of the twelve tribes could go into the tabernacle, the, the Levites, and, and a certain subset of the Levites, the, the, the priests. And only the great high priest could go into the most holy place, or the holy of holies, the inner sanctum of the tabernacle, and he but once a year, and the only way he could do that was by the sacrificial blood. The atoning blood on the day of atonement. He going to do that once a year. Careful restriction around the presence of God. Why in the Old Testament was God's presence so restricted? All that restriction is highlighting the great chasm that exists between the holy God and unholy people. It is dangerous for unholy people to walk rashly before a holy God in His presence. He's a consuming fire. His holiness is dangerous to unholy people. That's why it was carefully restricted. Yet even in the restriction, God still needed his presence. The day of atonement, he, he allowed the priests to go in and serve as mediator between a holy God and unholy people to offer sacrifices that temporarily atoned for the people. All of those sacrifices point forward to the great and ultimate sacrifice, the great land. Jesus Christ. The incarnation marks a dramatic change in accessing God. You see, we don't go to God. He and His infinite wisdom came to us. He came and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us, is one of Jesus' names. The divine presence comes to us, not unrestricted, Full access. Christ paves the way for open access to God. One of my favorite parts of the passion narrative when Jesus dies, when he breathes his last breath, what miraculous happening occurs in the temple? The curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place tears from top to bottom. And that, that positional tearing is is a way of saying the door is not open. Top to bottom, like you're going through a curtain. Access to God is now granted through the death of Christ. That's the significance of the tearing of the temple. That restriction is now lifted by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God entered our sinful existence through his son, Jesus. He gives us his presence. And as Jesus walked this earth, he experienced every human limitation that we experience today. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to be tired and weary. He knows what it is to be lonely. He knows what it is to be betrayed. He knows what it is to be misunderstood. He knows what it is to be rejected. That's the thing. He came and dwelt among us. And he's therefore able to sympathize with us in our every weakness. See, the incarnation is such good news, not only in its saving reality, but in the fact that Jesus sympathizes with us. He identifies with us today in our every weakness. So what are you going through now? 
And consider this, Jesus knows what it's like. He understands what you're going through, and he desires you to draw near to him, to draw close to him, to experience his grace and his nearness, his tenderness in the midst of your lowliness, your suffering, your rejection, your betrayal, your friendlessness. He knows all of it, and he's able to draw near and sympathize with us in our every weakness. He understands you. Why is access to God so critical? Why is the blessing of Christ's presence such good news to us? Because we were created to be in fellowship with God. Our soul's deepest longing is satisfied only in fellowship with God, relationship with God. There is a desire for deep connection in the heart of every human being. And what we do is we try to meet that need for connection, for satisfaction, for meaning in all the wrong ways and in all the wrong places. C.S. Lewis, in that same book that I quoted in the introduction of this sermon, says this, this is mere Christianity, God created the human machine to run on himself. He is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn. We run on relationship with God. That's the fuel our spirits were designed to burn. But the way humans go about their lives because of our sin and brokenness is we try to put anything else in that tank, foolishly thinking that it's going to help us run through life. It's like dumping sugar in your gas tank and hoping that that's going to work in your car. It's not going to work. It's never going to work. There's only one fuel that we as human beings run on, and that is relationship with God. You need God. You need God. You need God in your life. You are empty and unsatisfied, and you're going to chase all kinds of rabbit trails and dead-end places until one day you figure out that you, you need Him. And hopefully it won't be too late. You need God. I need God. He is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn. Everything else is sugar in the tank. It will leave us broken down on the road of life, unsatisfied, unfulfilled, frustrated. You and I need God. That's why His presence is so important. We need Him. You need Him. The character of Christ, the presence of Christ, thirdly and finally, the grace of Christ. The incarnation of Jesus offers us a precious gift of grace. Let's look at verse 16 in John chapter 1. Verse 16 says this, And from His fullness we have all received grace, upon grace. The fullness of Jesus Christ that John talks about here is the sum total of his person and his work. Through the sum total of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, we receive grace on top of grace. Grace stacking up on grace. That's what we receive. What does grace mean? It's a word that's often used in church settings, but do you know what it means? Do I know what it means? Friends, grace is God's unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor to guilty people. Grace is his unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor 
to us guilty people. We are all guilty sinners. As Alex came and shared, we all rebelled against God. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We stand in need of salvation and forgiveness. The words of Scripture do not sugarcoat our guilty condition. God's Word gives an accurate diagnosis of our desperate condition. We are described as dead in our trespasses and sins, in need of spiritual rebirth. We need to be made alive again because we've died in our sins. We are dead people walking, awaiting God's wrath. But here is the good news. We have received grace on top of grace in Christ. Death does not have to be our end game. Spiritual death can give life, give way to spiritual life if we would trust in Christ, the one who became incarnate, the one who died as a substitute on the cross, and the one who rose again. We can have spiritual rebirth. It is a gift of grace. When we trust in Christ, we're forgiven of all our sin. God no longer sees us as sinful. He sees us in the perfection of His Son, clothed in His Son's righteousness. God declares us innocent, justified, forgiven, acquitted on all accounts when we trust in Christ. Grace on top of grace is the most precious gift that has ever been given. In my household this morning, we open gifts, and my daughter for two years has been asking for a hoverboard. You know what those things are? They're like the old like segways that you see like in the mall or police officers moving around. But it's got smaller wheels and doesn't go quite as fast. It makes us nervous, so I waited two years because we don't want her out a broken arm. We figured she was close enough to get in the hoverboard, and so she got it this morning, and she was thrilled, raising her hands up, thrilled, it's the hoverboard! What does Cecile do, though, when we gave her the wrapped gift? How did the gift become hers? Well, she had to take it. She had to open it and enjoy it. She had to receive it. Now, I want you to picture this scene. What if Cecile would have said to Laura and to me, Mommy and Daddy, listen. I, I want to take the trash out for the next seven days because I want to contribute to this gift. I want to earn this. I, I'm happy to have it, but I want to contribute to it. Now, what would be a thought had she said that? We would have been hurt because she's trying to earn a gift that we were giving her in love. And we would have also understood that she doesn't grasp the nature of a gift. She's thinking it as work and earning and meriting. Friends, but that nullifies the whole point of a gift. A gift cannot be earned. A gift must be received. And so it is with Jesus. This gift of grace, the gift of all gifts, must be received. And when we try to earn it or contribute towards it through our good behavior or through the money that we give or the, the, the checkbox of religious exercises, thinking that that's going to save us. What do we do? We're actually dishonoring the one who gives us the gift. 
and showing to him that we don't understand the nature of it yet. You cannot earn this gift of grace. You can never do enough good deeds. You can never say enough Hail Marys and our fathers. You can never give enough money to earn your salvation. You can only receive it by faith, saying, oh God, I received this. There's nothing I can ever have done to be forgiven. It's only what Christ has done for me. I believe you. I receive it. And it becomes yours to enjoy forever. That's what Christmas is all about. All of us have been given gifts, right? The origin of that is Christ, the greatest gift that's ever been given. And like any gift, it has to be received and opened to be enjoyed. Receive Christ by faith. Don't try to earn it. Wherefore, just receive it with open hands and a heart just brimming over with thankfulness. Let's pray today. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for a chance to gather together, to open your word, to see your heart, your heart of grace, and that you've drawn near to us in, in the perfection of your Son. The one who is fully God, fully man. The one who fully saves us because of his divine and human identity. The one who tabernacles among us, shouldered our sin, experienced our existence, who sympathized with us in every weakness. Thank you for giving us grace upon grace through your son Jesus. May we receive you by faith with open arms. And that will us. In Jesus' name. Amen.